Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we are going to be talking about the uh, DHH keynote from Rails World. Um, now, Valentino, you said you had a chance to watch it. I was actually in the room when he gave it. So nice. Um, you know, may- maybe we could just talk a little bit about the conference for a minute. Um, yeah, I'd love to know. We had, uh, you know, Miriam and. Uh, uh, oh, man. I want to say Danny, <laughs> but I know that's not Dari. Yeah, Dari and Miriam. Yeah, Dari. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they were on last week and they and, were the uh, MCs. Yeah. Yeah, we got some great feedback from them on uh, on the overall, you know, conference and all that. Uh, yeah. It seemed like a beautiful venue and like just deep, very well done to the details, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it I'm curious, is. You know, how you thought of it. So it is probably the best Ruby conference I've been to in a really, really long time. Um, it feels like... I re- so I remember way back in the day, we had all the little regional conferences everywhere. And it sort of started to taper off. And then COVID hit and you know nobody did anything. And then it seems like it's come back and a little bit, right? And so, you know, like Ruby Central's putting on their conferences and... Um, you know, we've had a few others here and there, but Rails World, man, it was firing on all cylinders. It was so good. Um, the speakers were spot on. Um, it, it really felt like a celebration of Rails and the Rails community. Um, I keep hearing from people asking me if Rails is in decline and if this conference was any indication, it really isn't. Um, especially when you look at they they announced it. They put the tickets up and they sold out in what like forty five minutes. I mean, there's definitely a demand for stuff like this. Um, I also don't want to bag on any of the other conferences, but it seems like some of the other Rails conferences feel less focused on kind of the the amazing things we have in the Ruby and Rails community, and so they get a lot more into the weeds of. Um, community or things like that, which, you know, is fine, I guess. But it seems like there's not as much of a focus on, you know, what's there and what the real power is behind what we can do. And yeah, so that that's where I really love this was like all the talks were basically on, hey, here's how you do this amazing thing with this feature in Rails, or here's how you do this amazing thing with this feature in Rails. And maybe this third party thing that that you know um it it plugs in seamlessly so um that was awesome the venue was awesome uh wasn't that far from the uh central station in amsterdam the train station um incidentally there's also like a i wouldn't call it a bus terminal per se but there are like four or five places where you can get on buses or trams and go throughout the city and yeah you got off there and you walked you know maybe a half mile maybe uh to get to the oh, nice. uh the venue and the venue was really cool it was this older building that they had converted into a an events venue and they had you know the two rooms for the two talks and one room was filled all the way to the back that's where they did the keynotes and then the other room was filled two thirds of the way to the back and so yeah and then the expo hall was across the way and that was great and uh 
anyway, it was just really terrific. And it felt like it felt like the old Ruby conferences to me where I could just go in and just talk to whoever I wanted and, you know, kind of get a feel for where the community's at. So where is it at? <laughs> what was that? I said, so where is it at? <laughs> where is what at? The community. <laughs> you know, um, no, it's fine. But I think we're going to talk about a lot of the things that the community is getting excited about. Um, yeah, I mean, so I I was watching Chris Oliver's talk uh, earlier this morning. Uh-huh. You mentioned, you know, how do you use this thing? Uh, and I, you know, <laughs> he, he had uncovered some things in Rails that I never knew. Right. Oh yeah, and so I, I think that was like the underlying tone, right? Is just like how long it's come along, and all the things that have been added, and kind of just like that is continuing to get better, right? Right. <laughs> and and more things that you wish were there are just there, right? Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing is, is that it's it's becoming much more of a modern. I, I think some of the things that frameworks like Rails struggle with is just staying current, right? with the state of the art. I mean, right now we're watching the React community just struggle with uh, React server components. And pretty much everybody I talk to in that arena agrees that it's the direction it has to head in, but it's not backward compatible like most of the other changes they've made to React. And so, you know, people are struggling with some of these moves forward. And it feels like in the Rails community, we really, how do I put it? a lot of the enhancements that we pick up from Rails, like we're used to some breaking changes from one version to the next, um, which is fine. And he talks about that in the keynote with the stability versus um, uh, making the right kind of progress. Um, but it seems like most of these things more or less seamlessly integrate. And so you make the upgrade, you you know, maybe you hassle with a couple of small details to get it to work the way you want it to. And then yeah, you've got a modern framework. And since Rails has invested in that continuously, none of these jumps are huge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it explains a lot that's been coming out, right, with the whole uh, Kamal uh, deployment tool and the push for, to be honest, not necessarily from DHH, but I know, you know, Toby from Shopify is always pushing for SQLite, right? And yeah, getting everything to run on a single machine, right? Uh, so that yep. people can just get started right away. Uh, I think yep. that's huge. <laughs> and I always thought that was like crazy when, you know, <laughs> Docker was pushed initially mm-hmm. with without the tooling that it has now, um, right? You know, where you it you just needed to spin up all these extra things, and Docker was almost a necessity tool, <laughs> right, to yep. get everything to run. Uh, to get the background workers and all this mm-hmm. stuff where, you know, okay, just, you know, throw it in the database for now, right? Like, yeah, there, there are so many things you could do just to get it like running on your machine, right? And yep. I, I love seeing that. And yeah, the more we can whittle down to just start and try it out, like the better to like get yep. pe- more people using it, right? Well, that's one thing that David talked about quite a bit was, um, the idea of it being a one-person framework. And, you know, so you're talking about SQLite, um, you know, kind of the simplicity there. He talked about no build with the, um, you know, so it's like import maps and things like that, prop shaft. Um, you know, just simplifying the asset pipeline. Um, 
you know, the solid cash and solid queue, um, Kamal. I mean, a lot of these things go into simplifying it. So it's a one person thing. And yeah, he did talk about SQLite in his talk too. Um, but yeah, all of these things. And then, yeah, just making it so simple to deploy that you literally set up some machines and tell Kamal, okay, go get it. Right. It, it's done. And, and I'm really looking forward to doing some of that. Um, there are some open source monitoring tools that I kind of want to see if I can integrate into the deploy. Right. So, um, what, what's the one I was looking at the other day? Um, anyway, you, so you can pull some of those in, right? So if you do have a third party thing that has to go, right, you can, you should be able to buckle it into Kamal and then deploy the whole thing, right? And run your updates and the whole nine yards. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this all goes. But yeah, what you're talking about um, with SQLite, he he talked about it because it has some of the same advantages now that solid cache and solid queue have. And so, you know, we we can dig into that. But yeah, Kamal on itself. So I talked to David at the conference about Kamal. I did an interview with him specifically on that. So people can go and they can kind of get the details on that when it comes out. But um, yeah, it's exciting to me because Heroku is so flip and expensive. So yeah, so it was exciting to hear David talking about this stuff. Um, and I did an interview with David at the conference about Kamal. So if you want to get into more into the weeds with that, uh, definitely check that interview out out when it comes out. It should be out here within the next week or two, whatever. Um, oh, awesome. But yeah, he kind of made the point, let's just start with Kamal and kind of work through some of these frameworks. I also want to talk about the Rails Foundation because I think that's cool. Um, but yeah, he was talking about Kamal and he basically brought up Heroku, right? Because the ergonomics on Heroku are awesome. You just, at least back in the day, you would just get push to Heroku and it would deploy it for you. Um, and he said he wanted something that was just as easy as that to use. And so um, he put something together and yeah, it uses Docker. And um, when you deploy, when you do the setup for the first time, it actually... Uh, SSH is into your machine, kind of like Capistrano does. And then it installs Docker and, you know, and then it pulls from Docker Hub or wherever you, you know, whatever registry you have your container file in and it deploys it onto the machine. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm thinking that there may be some other like third party things that I may want to deploy with with my Rails app, right? So maybe some monitoring tools or something like that. And so I'm one, you know, I asked him about that, you know, it's like, hey, you know, with the deployment, and it sounds like you can deploy anything with it, not just Rails. And so you should be able to set it up and say, hey, I want this other image with these other um, environment variables, right? And then have it run. So you could conceivably deploy, a, I don't know, a Mastodon or you could deploy a GitLab or, or something like that with it and, uh, you know, and have that set up. Um, but yeah, it's very, very cool. And I love the idea of being able to run it on a couple of $10 servers, in, you know, in DigitalOcean or Linode or something. Um, I think his demo uses something called Hetzner. I can't remember. But yeah. But you can deploy it to any of these, and it doesn't matter which one. And when you want to deploy, you just run the Kamal command, and it, you know, builds your Docker uh, image and 
pushes it up and then deploys it. Nice. Is that all run on the same machine if you have like multiple apps and stuff? Like if you wanted to run GitLab or something like, is it like multi-app supported or is it more like you have to deploy this to the same, to different nodes? Um, I I haven't looked at that. Um, the way he set it up was you, he set up a database server and then two Rails servers and it uses a load, it sets up the load balancer for you and then oh, nice. it deploys. So you have three, basically three machines yeah. that, that it runs on. But still, I mean, if you're running three $5 machines or $10 machines a, a month, I mean, that's really not bad to, to run your app. And yeah, any of the setup that you do, if, if you can get it to run in a Docker container on your computer, you can, it, it should run on the cloud just fine or on the VPSs or whatever. Yep. So anyway, it's, it's very cool. And, and I'm, I'm working on getting top end devs moved over to a lot of this new stuff because, um, you know, just talking about, we talked a little bit about the asset management before, um, Webpacker is the bane of my existence. I freaking hate that thing. <laughs> and I mean, every time I need something to happen on my um, on my website, and and I have to figure out how to get some slightly older version of some library or some slightly light older library in there. I mean, I have to jump through a million hoops to get it to work, and then it still doesn't quite want to play nice. Now, some of this is my fault because I like go buy a template out on um oh what's it called theme forest right and it still has jquery or something in it right and you know and so you have to hassle with all that crap because you're using something like jquery but still um it's pretty nice so it the the other thing with kamal is if you have the the no build he talked about no build a whole bunch but if you have no build going then you know, it just compiles your assets when you, you know, when you build your image and then you, off you go, right? So. Anyway. Yeah, that's always a pain point. I know, <laughs> even historically deploying to Heroku, which is supposed to be the easiest thing to d- deploy to. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was the number one thing is like assets pre-compiling as you're going. Yeah. And then exploding and trying to figure out what happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I I mean, I, I know a ton of people that are still using Heroku to deploy their apps. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Right. I mean, they don't want to spend their time fiddling with ops. But I, this short circuit's a whole bunch of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, that I mean, should be cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I can't, I, like I said, I'm kind of getting to the point where I want to deploy it, but I'm moving a lot of the assets and stuff that I have over to import maps and trying to get that to the point where, you know, um, I want to move off of sprockets and onto prop shaft for the other stuff. But, um, yeah, it, it just seems like it's so much cleaner and, and happier. And prop shaft is pretty simple to understand. Um, sprockets has a lot of cruft in it for like Bauer and stuff that nobody uses anymore. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, part of his talk that I thought and uh, how he talked about, you know, kind of the prog- the progression of all these tools, right? These build tools. Yep. We had Bauer and uh, 
you know, he he mentioned many other ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it has like all... YUI in it. Yeah, anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was an interesting uh, concept, right? Like he, he even mentioned GraphQL as an example of yeah. all these tools that became popular. Uh, and then over time, I've kind of just like, you know, do we need these or not? Right. Like, is this mm-hmm. a good default? <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, point, right? Like, uh, maybe we don't need all this extra stuff yeah. anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. He was talking about it as a one person framework, which is where yeah. SQLite comes back in. You talked about that for a second. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, just having a thing where you can just, you don't have to have a lot of setup. You don't have to have deep expertise in anything other than Rails. And if you're not an expert, you can still figure out how to do 80, 90% of the stuff. Right. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how this evolves, right? Because obviously the defaults are nice to have minimal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Right, which I think like, that's probably the reason why the Rails new page is the way it is. <laughs> right. Right. And doesn't give you like, you know, more details or guides or, or things like that that right. maybe could. Uh, but yeah, having like the minimalist approach has definitely been like something I look for uh, in yeah. frameworks, right? Where you could just, okay, get started with the bare minimum and then I'll add to it and be right. more modular as you start going, right? Like the, the whole modular monolith idea is definitely becoming more popular, mm-hmm. but I think also makes more sense. <laughs> Yep. Uh, and so I can well, yeah. see a lot of the decisions here kind of conforming to that idea, right? Yeah. Well, and you talk about a modular monolith, and it's funny because I talk to people and they complain about monoliths where uh, there really aren't clear boundaries between the different parts of the app. And you definitely, yeah, you can get yourself into trouble with that. But what I found is that finding and rooting out that coupling and then making it work in spite of it or making work around it is much easier than trying to figure out the boundaries between a whole bunch of different microservices. Yeah, that's 100% true. And I mean, there's tools too to help with those boundaries, right? Like, uh, what is it, Packwork? Or pack, not Packwork, yeah. but Packer. Uh, yeah. There's a great, great tool, uh, I think from Gusto or Planet Scale, one of those. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we did an interview on it. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it works really well and it does like mm-hmm. it helps identify the boundaries and, and makes it so that you can like stack everything together but keep it yeah. separate, right? Uh yeah. And so I mean that just goes back to my point, like, you know, it it's needed if you want it, right? Like why yeah. why have it in Rails though? <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah. So yeah, I agree. Um so yeah, I'm I'm still getting into prop shaft uh for images and CSS. I'm just kind of seeing where that takes me. I haven't quite figured out where the f- font stuff will live, but I'm typically not using that many like custom fonts, so that's less of an issue for me, you know, whether prop shaft will manage them or whether you anyway. But yeah. So I'm just looking at the slide where he listed all seven of the technologies. PropShaft is the top one. Kamal is the bottom one. The next one is in the list is Turbo. And he talked about how... Um, so Turbo started as Turbo Links, right? Yeah. And I think we're all semi-familiar with Turbo Links. For the people who aren't, 
TurboLinks essentially is a, a JavaScript library that when your request goes back to the server, it gets the response, it looks at it, do, does a diff between it and the DOM that's in your um, in your app, and then it just basically applies the diff. And so it makes it faster to paint because it have to repaint the whole thing is the idea, right? And so Turbo 8, and, and for a while, they've been adding other features so you can replace parts of the screen, right? Or parts of the app. But the thing he showed in the keynote was that they would, um, like if they added a column to their Kanban workflow in Basecamp, then when it reload when it loaded that in what it would do is it would jump back to the top of the page right and so they figured out what they needed to do in turbo so that you can just add that to the dom without having it reposition on the page and apparently that opens up a bunch of other possibilities yeah that'll be really cool uh i know was it joe mizzolati uh-huh he has like a He's behind the whole turbo native stuff. Yeah. Uh a lot a lot of the tutorials anyway. He has like a class where uh he's gonna start uh, you know, walking walking people through how to get it get the native aspect of it working. I'm interested to see I mean, it makes so much sense uh to let the DOM work for itself, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. yeah, so Joe is coming on in a week or two. <clears throat> Um, I mean, I could only get the podcast booth for so many hours. So I invited <laughs> him and um, I, the guy behind Super Rails, Yarrow. Um, I invited him on to come talk to us about stimulus hotwire stuff because um, that's what his talk was on. Um, but um, yeah, so when I talked to Joe, um, apparently most of Joe, so when Joe consults with, uh, clients, cause he's a freelancer, effectively what he does is he works with them to, uh, clean up the way that their rails app works so that they can use turbo native. And then what he does is he basically just puts a turbo native wrapper around the rails app and that becomes their mobile app. When we were chatting, he said, oh, cool. I might be spoiling some of his discussion, but he said that one of his clients, so um, if you don't release a new app every five years or something, then Apple considers it a defunct app and basically starts emailing you saying, hey, we're going to take your app down because it's too old. Well, their Rails app works great and has done for the last five years. And so they didn't need to update their app because the updates were in their web app, right? And it was just mobile, super mobile friendly, progressive web app. And so... Um, he's like, yeah, so basically they're paying me to get in, right, um, with updated uh, mobile development tools for Apple and rebuilding the app and submitting it to the App Store as a new version. <laughs> right? That's because really funny. <laughs> the rest of the stuff in it is the web app. And I was like, well, that's <laughs> cool. Now, there are a few things that you probably can't do in that, right? So I'm looking at um, top-end devs. I'm getting ready to release an app, but I'm using an app builder system, right? So it's it's a third-party thing. You'll have a separate login for it, which kind of sucks. But, you know, I could get it launched quickly so people can watch my videos and things like that off of Top End Devs. Um, you know, get the premium versions of the podcast, which I'm also releasing next week. Um, but the thing is, is that um, 
I wanted it so that people could tap the button, right? So if I'm getting on a 10-hour plane ride to Amsterdam, I can tap the button and say, download this so I can listen to it later. And you really can't do that with the kind of app that Joe's talking about. But um, for the rest of it, yeah, it's it's really slick. And Strata plays into this, and I didn't quite understand. Um, so Strata apparently helps you bridge the gap. And I saw that you could use like HTML, right, for yeah. the native elements. Is it bridge yeah, so, that aspect of it? Yeah, so this is a thing that's been a thing in um, iOS development, at least. And I'm pretty sure in, in Android development for a long time is if there was some part of your app that was hard to render, but you could do it in HTML, you can put a web view in and you can actually build it with the web view. And then there are ways to bridge the communication between the two. And Strata apparently does that. And so if you're doing Turbo Native, on parts of your app and not the whole thing, then Strata helps your your uh, Rails app talk to your native app. And so they they work more seamlessly together. But I don't know oh, exactly cool. how all of it works. Uh, Jay Ohms did a, 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 a presentation on it, but I, I didn't get to watch it. So, But yeah, so these things kind of come together so that your your Rails app can do more things for you. Right. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, what was the, uh, were there any talks that, you know, specifically about that that stood out? Um, for the Turbo Native stuff or, or just any of the Turbo stuff? Uh, I think there were one or two others. Uh, I think Yaro's talk where he talked about Hotwire. I, I think he brings in some Turbo stuff. Um, I, I was talking to a lot of people, and so I, I only went to a handful of the talks. Um, but yeah, there there were talks about Turbo. I just didn't get to make it to them. And so I'm looking forward to figuring out how to bring that in, right? Because if I can make top-end devs snappier, I can make it easier for people to navigate through, right? And I don't have to bring in something heavy-handed like React or Vue or Angular. I mean, that makes me a happy person, right? <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, I'm I'm really digging a lot of this stuff. In a recent app, I just uh, you know just used Rails views and mm -hmm. did the typical like crud just to get something up and and working. And it, yeah, you know, I I kind of miss that. <laughs> yeah, kind of miss not having to deal with JavaScript and you know mm -hmm. <laughs> all the form stuff. And yeah, if we, yeah, it, I would be great to just get a lot of that working. <laughs> it's it's real. I I. The thing that's funny, though, with a lot of this is like, um, so I've been kind of reworking some parts of top end devs. Yeah, the look and feel is going to change again, folks. Uh, if, if that bothers you, I'm sorry. But um, I figured out that using Tailwind a different way makes um, adding enhancements to, to, to things a lot easier. Because um, like I said, I bought the theme off of Theme Forest and it pulls in all these extra JavaScript libraries, which work great for the elements that they've already put on the page. You just get the HTML and you load in their JavaScript and it works. The problem is, is that if I want to change any of it, then I have to go reverse engineer what they have, right? And so what I've been doing is I've been going back and I've been basically rebuilding the page with just um, stimulus and, um, and, and Tailwind. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, I know how this works. This is here. I know how this works. This is here. 
And it, it makes it really, really easy to do this stuff. And I'm also finding that Stimulus has a lot of plugins for a lot of the stuff that I want to do that isn't just anyway. So, um, but yeah, when I was building it out and I had it just, you know, it basically hit the page, load the view um, and stuff like that. I have a plugin on, or no, I think it's just an option in um, Brave browser and, and, and it's an option in Chrome as well. And you turn it on and it tells you how fast your page loads. And, you know, some of my pages on my development machine are loading in like 100 milliseconds or less. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of these things that makes it faster, snappier, you know, better user experience. But in reality, uh, Rails, just plain old Rails, it does pretty well on its own, right? And so... You know, you're talking about, hey, on some of my projects, I'd like to bring this stuff in and make it faster. And my point is, is you don't always have to do that, right? A lot of times it's just fast enough on its own. And then from there, you can go and look at some of these optimizations you can do and and make it a whole lot snappier. So, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Like, like just vanilla rails without all the other stuff, like bringing in solid cash or bringing in um, you know, turbo or, you know, prop shaft, you know, you kind of have to have prop shaft anyway for your assets, but you get what I mean, right? You don't have to do a lot of this stuff to really get what you want. Yeah. I mean, to, to Nate Berkuspect's, uh point, <laughs> most mm-hmm. performance issues can be solved with a CDN, <laughs> right? Like most That's of it's on the fair. client, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing is that, yeah, it's it's 86 milliseconds. I think the last time I ran the uh, top end devs app with the new front page, right? Um, to, to render the whole thing, right? Now, granted, I still have elements I need to add to it. So it may go to 150 or 200, right? But the thing is, is that, yeah, um, with network latency, you know, maybe it adds another 50 or 100 milliseconds, right? If you're around the world from wherever I deploy it to. But yep. realistically, yeah, you know, a CDN offsets a lot of that with your um, with your assets. But the other thing that's fun is that with import maps, this is the thing that I, I, I started putting the import maps in. And when I did, you know, import map, pin, and then whatever library, what it did is it actually put a link in to the JSPM uh, CDN. Right. Oh, that's so it's not even it's not even loading it off of my server anymore. And so um, right. And so then it just has to pull the styles and images off of my machine or out of the cloud if I'm doing cloud storage for that stuff, you know, object store. And then yeah, the rest of it just kind of cleanly happens off the internet. And yeah, if JSPM goes down, then yeah, my site doesn't do all the fancy stuff, but it probably kills a whole bunch of other people off too. (laughs) And it'll be interesting to see how that affects like caching in general, right? Because if there's fewer sources where people are referencing all of these assets, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's going to be easier for the tail ends of the network to resolve those caches, right? Right. (laughs) Be able to do it, do it faster because it's the same asset for... Yeah, they may already have it cached from somebody else's site. Right, right. Yeah, that'll definitely be interesting. In, interesting for sure. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to talk about on the front end before we slide into the other stuff, kind of the back end and queuing? Uh, 
Not really. I mean, the, the big biggest change was, uh, you know, <laughs> killing sprockets. <laughs> was yeah. That, was a, the most uh, battle. I, I guess there was the, uh, you know, he made an offhand comment about type, the whole TypeScript thing. But uh, yeah, know, it was it was more of a, you know, do you need to use it or not? Right. Like, right. Um, yeah. I don't think there's anything to be said there other than, <laughs> you well, know, if you like TypeScript, use it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Is if you're going to use TypeScript, you add a build step, right? So if you, if you're not doing a build, right, you're using import maps and a, a third party CDN, right? There's no build for, for JavaScript yeah. at least. Right. And then prop shaft effectively does, like a minor bit of cleanup and minification on your CSS. I mean, that, that's the whole build step there. So it's blazing fast. Um, but yeah, if you want TypeScript, I don't see any reason why people couldn't use it. But yeah, you're going to have that build step. You're going to have to have some kind of build tool to compile it and do whatever else with it. Um, but even then, what you can do is you could have uh, TypeScript running I mean, this is more or less how Tailwind runs for CSS is, you know, now you do slash bin slash dev with your Tailwind CSS dash Rails um, gem, right? And then what it does is it, when you add stuff to your app, it evaluates it and says, okay, I now need these classes, right? And because it basically tree shakes your CSS. I don't know if that's the right term for CSS. It is for JavaScript. But you know, effectively, it drops out all the stuff you're not using to keep your file small. And so it has to do a rebuild. But then it builds it to a place where your system knows to go look for it and do the asset compilation off of it. And so you could do the same thing with your uh, your uh, TypeScript watcher, right, where it, it does a periodic build and puts it somewhere where your assets can then load it, right? And then your application JS, you just tell it, hey, you want all the files in this folder. I mean, that's effectively what you do. And then you say, pin this whole folder and it goes and it gets all the JavaScript out of it and pins it and import maps. So you could do it. And I don't think it'd be that onerous, but I'm pretty comfortable with JavaScript. And I know this isn't a popular opinion on JavaScript Jabber. Uh, there, there, are, there are a few people that are hardcore TypeScript likers. And then there are a few people that are hardcore TypeScript haters. I don't hate it. I just... I don't feel like I need it. So, but yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm really in love with the idea of no build. It's like, you know, just keep it simple for me. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Anyway, let's, let's talk about solid cash for a minute. Yeah. This was an interesting thing to highlight. I thought, yeah. <laughs> well, um, and it, it's the same thing that you were talking about with SQLite being more of an option is SQLite typically run locally. And of course, all your databases have the same constraint with the, he talked about the hard drive speeds. And so now the hard drives are as fast as they are. Yeah. SQLite, solid cache, all that stuff. It enabled all this stuff. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see more benchmarks on this because yeah. <laughs> I'm not sold. Uh, on on the speed savings. <laughs> oh, really? So the cost savings, a hundred percent. But the speed, uh, you know, Redis is definitely optimized. Uh, yeah, for the way that it runs, and mm -hmm. you're going to get some latency on disk. Uh, even even though it does work similarly, 
because there's like yeah. you know you get caches in memory uh that you don't necessarily get with disk uh mm-hmm. that i don't know that are there yet uh and so it'll be interesting to see what the actual benchmarks show like you know sure you know they the, i think the underlying talk was you know about the idea of like shaving milliseconds right <laughs> yeah which but in a grand scheme of things if you're talking about hundreds of millions you know billions of cash calls like that could add up <laughs> so mm-hmm. i i'm not entirely uh you know i would like to see some more data on it yeah but i'm i'm definitely on board with you know moving more things to the you know to the stack uh yeah so the two interviews i did one was with david and the other one was with donald and he's the guy that built solid cash okay and so so he talked through the numbers with hay and base camp and you know talked about you know how how it all kind of came together it was really interesting um but yeah uh it looks like it's working for base camp right for, for their apps um you know and so i don't see why it wouldn't work for for my apps but yeah i mean the proof's in the pudding right the other thing is is that um you know i don't know if it affects it much if you're using like a a hosted database out of aws versus right you know if you're running a local sqlite or a local postgres or a local network postgres as opposed to you know somewhere in the the data center or maybe on the other end of it or i don't know but i mean it it makes sense it does I mean, the idea of the cache is that it saves you the time of rendering it too. And so, you know, yeah. if, if you don't have to go do a whole bunch of work that you don't have to do and you can just make a network call or, uh, you know, because you have to do that for your Redis server anyway in a lot of cases, unless it's local, but, you know, or just do a disk call. Yeah, that may very well be faster in a lot of instances. So, um I'm pretty well sold on it, but obviously the proof is going to be in the pudding when I implement it. So. And then the other thing is, yeah, I, is that they've already been doing the Russian doll caching and everything else, right? And so they yeah. just turned it on to a different engine as opposed to, um, you know, in my case, I'm probably going to have to start implementing some of the caching on my apps. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it'd be interesting too, because, you know, caching <laughs> in general has been nice having Redis separate from the database in yeah. in that, you know, anything database-wise won't block that, you know, the cache. Yeah. Which can save a trip, right? Uh, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, because, like, you know, his talk is about, mm-hmm. you know, the one-person framework. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think back to my days of being a one-person uh, freelancer <laughs> and having, you know, the Rails app and do everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody goes to generate a report and my sequel gets, you know, bound down. (laughs) And (laughs) then, okay, well, if you have your your cache there and you have your queues there uh, (laughs) and you're just one person, you know, then you're, uh, at least you know where to look. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously these issues can be resolved uh, with some DevOps, but... Well, and Donald pointed out that the way they're doing it at Basecamp is that they actually have what was it, five or six MySQL servers that all 
hold the shard of the cache that are separate from their core database. And so, and he said that it's really easy to set that up. You just do the multi-database setup for Rails, the way you do it in Rails anyway, if you're going to use multiple databases. And then you basically just tell Solid Cache to shard over those databases. And so, then if you lose one, you know, you lose a 20% of your cache, but then it just rebuilds it. Right, so, it just rebuilds. So so you can separate them. I haven't gone into Solid Queue to see if you can use a separate database for that. I would imagine you can because it's it's all run through Active Record and stuff like that, just like everything else. So anyway, but yeah, I, I can see your concern there. Um, I also think that it's probably going to work better for some apps than others. So Right. Yeah, I'll, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> a Sidekick is really great and, and Redis is yeah. really great at, at these particular, you know, job killing things. But, you know, yeah. a lot of database related queue systems have been doing really well. Uh, yeah. What was it? Good, like you said, good job, right? Um, good, yeah, good job was the one that he talked about. But I remember Delay Job when it came out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so they work for some people, and, th- yep. and that's great. So <laughs> uh, it's good to see at least that they're thinking about, you know, the things that people end up adding mm-hmm. to their apps by default, right? Like, yep. you know, cache and queuing system is definitely one of those things, and that inevitably reads, does end up adding Redis. Uh, so if yep. it ends up working out, you know, that's one less tool you need to think yep. about when you're, you know, getting something up. So it, it makes sense. Yep. Yeah, and I think that was part of the idea too, right? Was that you could just turn the caching on and you're done, right? You don't have to go set up yep. Redis. You don't have to go, right? So, and Solid Queue is kind of the same idea, except it's queuing, right? And so it runs out of the database too. And you mentioned that already, but uh, I didn't, I didn't hear, I didn't talk to as many people about Solid Queue as I did Solid Cache. So. Yeah, I think there's, the, caching is always, <laughs> better uh in the rails context where you know there's so yeah. many great tools in rails for handling cache and like you mentioned russian doll caching reviews but like even more than that is you could just cache anywhere in a rails app yeah and you, you know it's available it's, it's great <laughs> mm-hmm. and you can handle what the invalidation is like for a specific block like context yeah. like it's just very well built um yep absolutely yeah the other thing is is like with the caching, uh, the trick is, like you said, you just go into another place and you cache there, right? So you figure out where your bottleneck is and you cache there, right? So it's like, okay, I'm doing a whole bunch of compute here. I don't have to do the compute caching. Um, yep. With queuing, I think the reason that that is less painful is just that if I need to do more queuing, I can just set up more workers, right? Um, I can expand the memory for my Redis. And so, you know, scaling the queuing is just, you know, it's it's almost trivial. And so, um, you know, solving any issues you have with queuing is is not a big deal. But the caching, you do have limits, right? And you can add more memory, you know, right, for your Redis. Um, but the rest of it is really being deliberate about where you put it. Whereas the queuing... You know, your problems with your queuing are basically, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm just going to scale this thing horizontally or whatever. Or, you know, scale Redis vertically 
but yeah. And, you know, one thing I I didn't think about with the queuing <laughs> is, you know, uh, databases have kind of more capacity than memory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just imagine, you know, a few instances in queuing where, oh, you accidentally, you know, backed up the queue and it blew out the Redis, uh, you know, and uh-huh. it went down. Like, if you have more capacity... <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it could fill up even more, uh, you know, <laughs> with, yep. with jobs you don't need uh, that you're going to have to kill anyway. I don't know. It's yep. a, another thing to think about. But uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, this leads into the the seventh piece that we haven't talked about that. And that's mission control. Right. So mission control, it sits on top of active job. So theoretically, you can use it with your sidekick or your rescue or your good job or delayed job or with solid cash. And so, yeah, if you're if you're getting full or you're getting you're having issues, you know, with your queue, you can go in and manage a lot of your queue with with mission control. And it's kind of a freebie option that'll work even if you. the thing I like about it is that active job made it so that I can swap out sidekick for rescue for whatever and mostly not have to care and so having mission control means that even more my management tool for my queue i don't have to care right yeah that was pretty cool i like seeing the you know the Mm end-to-end management of it all coming together rather than just doing each piece you know they're like okay this entire stack for queuing like UI yeah. all the way down to the back end, you know, use these things. So yep. I'm excited to try mission control. It definitely seems yep. like, you know, it's definitely a missing piece from a lot of the queuing mm-hmm. systems. Um, yeah. Well, anymore, if you're building a Rails app, you you pretty much rely on having queuing. And so, <laughs> yeah, they may as well make the experience nice. So you want to talk about Rails Foundation for a minute? Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of super excited to see how... Yeah. this particular thing plays out, right? Like, yeah, because this was the first event of many, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what they were saying. So next year, Rails World will be in Toronto. Toronto? Yeah, it was funny because I talked to Amanda Perino, who's the director of the foundation. Yep. I can't remember what her exact title is. I think it's director or executive director. But anyway, so she, she said, and I, I looked at her the night before they made the announcement, and I said, look, I said, this has been awesome, right? I'd like you to do one where I don't have to travel all the way to Europe to go to it, right? Because I just haven't had this kind of conference experience. And she's like, well, I can't tell you anything, but you're probably going to be happy with it. I said, you're bringing it to the US? And she said, I can't tell you anything, but I think you're going to be happy with it. And then she basically (laughs) told me that it wasn't coming to the US. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I guess if it's in South America and it's not that far a plane ride, but South America, a lot of those big cities are just as far away from here as yeah. Europe is. And so I'm like, okay, we'll see. I didn't even think about Canada, but um, yeah, the idea is, is that they're going to be providing a lot of these resources for rails. And so it's not just events, right? It's, um, you know, they're taking charge of the documentation. They're taking charge of a lot of the other uh, pieces that make up the rails ecosystem. And they're supporting all the people that are involved. And there were, what, like eight or 10 companies that were members that all donated a million dollars. I think um, Doximity, I think, was one of them. Yeah, we're uh, definitely one of the first I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're on that list. <laughs> yeah, they were. So 
you know, thanks to your employer, but, you know, also to all the other companies that are out there that are willing to, um, to donate to the, the community that way. I mean, it's, it's awesome. And I'm really excited. Yeah, it keeps to coming too. Do. It's kind of nice to see all these big Ruby and Rails shops mm-hmm. sponsoring it too, right? Like, yeah. uh, I think, was it Big Binary from India, right? Like, I think they joined that list. Um, yeah. There and, were two or three other companies that joined that they announced at the conference. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. great to see, like, you know, the, the getting fed back into the community. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, so far, I've, this, I, I mean, Rails World was, seems like a huge success so far. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I love seeing, and, you know, we had the, you know, the two MCs on before, but it seemed right. like from, at least social media, I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like they had a lot of new Rails attendees there, right? Yeah, I talked to um, probably 75% of the people I talked to had never, ever been to a Rails event before, right? Wow. Some of them had been doing Rails for, you know, three, four, five years, maybe. But yeah, the vast majority of people I talked to had, were telling me that it was their first ever Ruby or Rails focused event. And I think some of that has to do with it being in Europe, right? Because the the conference scene was just not as widespread over there as it was here, um, especially the last four or five years, right? Where, you know, we had Ruby Central as soon as the pandemic allowed people to go, they were doing conferences again. And, you know, more people here were willing to put on regional type events. And I don't know if what what the difference is as to why, but yeah. Yeah, I and it seemed like a lot from uh, from a lot of the attendees, like, see, or I, I was getting a lot of feedback that it was a lot of Ruby, like localized Ruby events have been popping up and it seems to be garnering support. Right, right from the the overall organization, and I'm hopeful that maybe we we'll see some of the foundation helping to support these more localized right. events too, because they are they're coming up, and more and more people are willing, and more and more people are interested, and yeah. I'm really interested in that, right? Like, because uh, I'm personally not able to travel <laughs> to a lot of these right. bigger conferences, uh, and I would love if it was just more local. I would definitely get more involved, you know. Uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone, right? Like, it's, yeah, uh, you know, the more smaller groups that we can get to, to, you know, contribute, uh, definitely is going to be better. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, I mean, I I got to go to Rails World basically because I submitted for the podcast thing, and they selected Ruby Rogues, and so they helped cover the cost of going, which was a big thing. And that, but yeah, I have to arrange stuff so that my wife can do carpool for the for school and you know all the other things there are a lot of reasons why people can't travel and so the local scene is is for a lot of people their best option and then kind of second to that is the online scene but the problem is with online is that it's just it's not quite the same as being able to sit down in person with somebody and have a conversation and so yeah it it I, I don't know exactly how to bridge that gap. To be perfectly honest, I'm looking at doing some more online events and then seeing if there are ways that we can 
facilitate some level of networking, right? But yeah, it's 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 a tricky proposition no matter how you slice it. And online is just never going to be the same as in person. And so yeah, I, I can Yeah, that's so true. There. I, I think in in all aspects, you know, <laughs> attendance always comes down to uh, you know, what's being given away. <laughs> <laughs> and who's showing up, right? Like, right. If you get a couple of big names uh, to sh- to give a talk or or to do something, uh, you know, you're going to get a bigger turnout. And th- the same is true for like, mm-hmm. you know, what, uh, you know, free pizza always gets people to show up, right? <laughs> right. Well, uh, I I'm going to push back a little bit on the big names. Um. Yeah, I. I, I to a certain degree, you're correct, right? You will get a bigger turnout if, you know, because, but, but it's because it doesn't your have event to be has more the credibility. Name. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the name the too. Names. It could just be the, the content, right? Like, right. If you have somebody giving a talk about, you know, using OpenAI and Ruby, right? Like mm-hmm. that you'll probably get more people show up because it's a bigger public interest. Right. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big name, but like a big name could also right. <laughs> draw people. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I'm seeing is that mostly, what people show up for is yeah what where do they think it's going to get them right what are they going to get out of it that they would have been able to get otherwise right and and then it's not just that but then it's what's the aspirational implication of it right so it's um if i go to this event i'm going to be you know i'm going to be able to contribute more to my team i'm going to look better in front of my peers i'm going to be able to Contribute in ways that give me a raise. I'm going to be seen as an expert in a way that gives me a better job, right? And so people have a lot of those whys in the background that, you know, whatever you're offering kind of, you know, funnels into. And so the the trick with most of these events is convincing them that that they can ha- that they can get that if they come to your event and then implement. And so the and the best way to do that is to make it so that if they come to your event and implement they can get those outcomes they want, right? So, so to the best of your ability, you want to deliver on that. But yeah, uh, the way they evaluate a lot of that is down to, like you said, either the the topics that are being covered or the people that are showing up and speaking. Because if they already trust the speakers or if they already know they want to learn the things being taught, then, you know, then, then it, it, it mostly removes barriers to them buying as opposed to convincing them that they want to be there, if that makes sense. So. Yeah, that does. And it, I, from personally for conferences, like I feel like sponsorships have been also a draw, right? Like if you see that, like you know, Meta is like sponsoring this event, and they have like mm-hmm. a panel of their people leading X Y Z, right? Like that's gonna help draw attention too. Uh, yeah. But th- I know that's. Not for the down the block conference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but maybe it could be. You know, maybe we could have yeah. like a a GitHub style, uh, you know, sponsorship style thing for local conferences. I think that would be pretty cool. Anyway, well, um, do you have anything else you want to talk about with this? Uh, not really. I think well? I think more time will tell at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've set a great to me. They've set a great precedent for what they plan to do, right? And they have this big event and they have mm-hmm. all this, uh, you know, extra sponsorship and, 
you know, how are they going to use it? They've laid out some, you know, trying to make it easier for people to get started right away and right get rid of these barriers of entry, right? Uh, and focus on documentation and things like that. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So far, so good, you know? <laughs> yep. yep. Absolutely. All right, well, let's do some picks and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, just a second. <laughs> I had the list up and I, I closed it by accident. Benjamin Oaks uh, on my team at Doximity here, uh, he open sourced uh, this tool called Super Spreader. Uh, Sounds it's, dangerous. Oh, it's absolutely awesome. Uh, it lets you uh, spread spread the load of uh, basically lets you distribute uh, active job data sets for doing like large backfills. Um, and so you can basically like just backfill many millions and millions and millions of records in like super efficient way and basically spread the capacity of that over many different jobs. Uh, and it's built on top of the active job and active record. And it just works like incredibly well for us. Um, and it handles, uh, you know, re-encrypting data and making a API calls and restructuring complex data. Uh, we, we do like a lot of stuff with this and, uh, we were able to open source it. And, uh, you know, I thank you, Ben, for, for getting that out. Uh, it's really awesome. So check that out. Awesome. All right. I've got two picks. Um, so the first one is a board game. So uh, as some of you may know, for the last three or four years, a good friend of mine, um, he actually lives around the block from me, um, but he's been basically doing the demo games for a local uh, board game conference called TimpCon. And so usually around this time of year, I've got a whole bunch of new games that I, you know, I'm I'm playing. And so for the next, you know, six or seven weeks I have games to, to pick and then TimpCon's in three weeks and so I'll probably wind up playing some other games with some other people and pick those too um, but the one that we've uh, one of the games that we've been playing that we're going to demo is called Acropolis and that's Acropolis with a K A-K-R-O-P-O-L-I-S and basically you're building a Greek city and you're you have different it's so board game geek weights it at 1.79 so it's it's a very easy you know uh game to play with your friends and you know it's it's not that complicated but effectively you're building this city and so um you take turns picking tiles out of the supply and you put them into your city and then the different colors are scored different ways so and i don't remember if these change from game to game or if they're the same but when we played like Every blue one that was part of your biggest group of blue ones counted for a point. Um, and, and, but you, if you add blue stars to your city, then the blue ones count for two or three or four, however many stars you have, right? So the yellow ones count for, you know, the, the yellow star thing was two stars. And so uh, once I had one yellow star tile each yellow one that was not connected to another yellow one was worth two stars right so they all kind of score differently the red ones are on the edge the purple ones are 
um, if they're completely surrounded, uh, right? And so anyway, um, and then the other thing that works is you can stack them, right? Because they're 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 each each uh, spot is a hex shape, right? And then each tile is three hex shapes put together, and so you can stack them. And when you stack them, then that location becomes two. Um, right, it's worth two instead of just one because it's too high. And so, basically, you're trying to build out your city in a certain number of rounds to score the most points, right? And it's it's real fun. Um, it's casual enough to be easy, but sometimes it's a little bit of a thinker, which is kind of fun. So, um, I'm going to pick Acropolis, um, and that one came out last year. And then the other one I'm going to pick is, um. I got some headphones. So um, I'm back to triathlon training. And um, when I run and when I bike, you know, I just put my headphones on. I go listen to whatever I'm listening to. But in the pool, it's a different story, right? Um, Some of you may or may not know this, but Bluetooth does not work through water. So... um, if you put Bluetooth headphones on, you connect them to your phone and you start swimming away from it, just a few inches of water is enough for the Bluetooth to not work. So um, I got these headphones. They're called Zygo, Z-Y-G-O, and they are not cheap. Uh, they're bone conduction headphones, but um, it comes with two pieces. And one of them connects to your phone via Bluetooth and then it connects to the headphones that are, you know, that go on your that their bone conduction. And if you've seen bone conduction headphones, they all look kind of the same. They've got the the thing that goes around the back of your head, and then they've got the two pads that kind of sit on your cheek. Um, it connects to the the transmitter that's connected to your phone via Bluetooth via FM radio. And FM radio will penetrate the water. And so I've been able to listen to books and podcasts or music while I'm swimming. Right. So then I just have a waterproof sleeve that my phone sits in, which I had anyway, because um, I'm using uh, TriDot. So I'll pick them too. Uh, TriDot gives me a what my workouts every week. And so I can just have the workout right there in front of me on my phone. So when I come up to the wall and stop after my lap, if I need to see what's coming next, I can look at my phone. But then the other thing is, is, uh, you know, I can stop and start the music and play through whatever I want while I'm working out in the pool. So I'm going to pick Zygo and I'm going to pick Tridot. Um, and yeah, those are my picks. All right, well, thanks for coming, Valentino. That was a fun discussion. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm, I'm kind of excited to... I, I know they've been rolling out tons and tons more yeah. Rails World videos, so I'm looking forward to diving in and, and seeing all that was there. Yeah, it's been good stuff. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Until next time, folks, Max out. <laughs>